0: Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Real Live Talk. Really appreciate you guys so much, like so much for being here and taking the time to check out this episode. I do pray that the content today, that the discussion today blesses you, challenges you, makes you think. If it does, if you would consider subscribing, um, sharing, or uh, leaving a comment or a review would be absolutely amazing. If you're watching this on the Facebook page or listening on one of the podcast platforms or however it is that you're checking this out, um, I'd love to uh, connect with you there, engage with you. This may be a discussion today. This is going to be a solo episode. This is more often than not, a conversational interview style uh, podcast, but every once in a while I do one of these episodes on my own. And I actually have something that's really just been just so on my heart lately. And I know it's going to be kind of a multi-part, multi-episode kind of a thing that'll just be scattered (laughs) in here and there. But uh, I want to start down a road today of discussing um, the new covenant and uh, really just the Amazingness. I want to just contemplate with you, honestly, how amazing and incredible this new covenant is. And I know for me, um, just really recently in my life, it's just been a big focus of wanting to discover more of what the new covenant is really all about. Because I've been discovering more and more that I think in so many ways that maybe unintentionally or without even realizing it, I think that god's people have this tendency to mix the old and the new covenant together and create some kind of a hybrid <laughs> covenant or to mix we could use this terminology to mix law and grace and what happens is when we try to mix law and grace i think what we're doing is we're trying to satisfy some kind of an egotistical thing within ourselves and forgive me for saying it that way but I think that we're trying to satisfy some need that we feel in ourselves that honestly has been put there by man. And, and I'm going to explain what I, what I mean in, in, in just a minute. But we have this, I think, sometimes need within ourselves to try to, what's a good word, to try to temper God's grace under the new covenant with something that's a little bit harsher so that we kind of feel like we're keeping ourselves on a short enough leash or keeping other people on a short enough leash where we're going to be protected from sin or protected from straying outside of the boundaries of God's requirements for us. And we actually come under a faulty, it's a misconception to think that the law is better at keeping us free from sin or to keep us from sinning than grace. Grace is actually so much better at keeping us living holy lives, at keeping us relying on the goodness of God. Grace is so much better at keeping us from sin and freeing us from sin and actually allowing us to walk in freedom out of a pure heart desire to be United with God in Christ, like grace is so much better at this than the law ever was or ever could be. The law is actually an inferior covenant because grace has come. The law is actually, and I'm going to share these scriptures with you as we go through um, this uh, this teaching series. So don't just think I'm throwing out you know words because I feel like using these words. The Bible says that the law, the old covenant, is obsolete meaning it's outdated, meaning that it's not valuable anymore for us, for our lives, as far as um, something in place by God to govern our lives, because God has moved on from that, and he's established a new covenant in his blood, and it's a covenant of grace, And under the covenant of grace, because of what Jesus did on your behalf and on my behalf, he's given us access into the presence of a heavenly father that loves us so much that it was his desire in the first place and his plan and his um, uh, effort in the first place to actually send his son, his perfect son, his beloved son to die in your place and in mine so that we could experience newness of life. I love it's a phrase that Paul will use in uh, the book of Romans that he'll he'll use this phrase that we should walk in newness of life. And the reason why I'm, I'm just very, very passionate in these days about talking about this and it's the reason why I want to devote this session to talking about this and probably, at least a handful of others as we go forward here. We'll see how long it takes me to kind of work out some of these things that I've just been thinking about and meditating on and pondering over. But um, God is just so intent on his people walking in freedom, experiencing his freedom, experiencing the fullness of what he came to do for us. And we have access to it all under the new covenant. And it's just not necessary for us to bring the law into it. And it really is. It's a humanistic thing. It's not a, it's not a spirit of God thing for us to bring the law in, in order to try to keep ourselves more, you know, tightly wound. See what happened was, and and re, and, and I jumped into this without even, you know, planning on jumping into it this quickly. All is to say that, um, you know, I'm I'm talking about some things that I haven't really uh, I've talked about them in conversation. But um, and, and to an extent, I've taught on some of these things, but there's definitely st- things in here that I'm going to be saying that uh, it's language that I'm still personally working through waters that I'm still personally wading through. And I hope that you and I can contemplate these things together. And if you'll hang with me, that uh, we can even have some conversations. And so if you have any disagreements, here's what I was going to say. <laughs> if you have any uh, disagreements with me, I would love to hear your disagreements. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to hear anything that you want to share. So reach out to me on one of the uh, Facebook, uh, one of the Facebook, wow, man. Reach out to me on one of these social media platforms. You can reach out to me on the Facebook page. The Facebook page for this podcast is, uh, it, so it'd be facebook.com slash real live talk podcast. If you just search for real live talk, On Facebook, then uh, I'm sure it will come up right away. Uh, Reach out to me there. And uh, again, if you will uh, like the page or follow the page or whatever they call it these days, then you'll also get notifications when we do the live episodes and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, I do appreciate you guys for being here and hanging in there with me. But this is kind of, there's a few overarching thoughts here that I've just been contemplating and studying and meditating on and I want to talk about these things in a in a public way, um, and I want to make sure that I'm not uh, crazy. And so I'd, I'd love to know if you agree with me or not. But here's the thing. The Bible uses very, very strong language. Paul in particular uses very strong language when it comes to the law. And remember, Paul was a man who was... Um, who dedicated his life, I mean, as a Pharisee, and, and even as he says in Philippians, a Pharisee of Pharisees. We're, we're talking about an elite teacher of the law, an elite um, uh, partner of the law of God, the old covenant law, Paul, who was, I mean, when we look at the book of Acts, I mean, he's, one of the guys who is the, one of the ringleaders on delivering up Christians to be arrested, to be put to death in some cases. He's the one that we see in the book of Acts just presiding over the stoning of Stephen as he's there because he's preaching Jesus, because he's preaching Christ. And so Paul is this zealous, zealous man for the law. I mean, a man that devoted his life, years and years of study of the old covenant law and the scriptures. And we see this just dramatic, intense, drastic turnaround in his life when he encounters Jesus and he gets knocked off his horse and he's blind for a few days. And he has this incredible encounter with Jesus where he goes from being one of the, the, the preeminent teachers of the old covenant law to being the strongest New Testament voice for actually giving up the law, surrendering that allegiance and obedience to the law, and actually coming fully into this new covenant of grace. And Paul uses very, very strong language. I mean, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he calls the old covenant law, he calls it a ministry of death. He calls it a ministry of condemnation. In Romans chapter 7, he actually says that you are dead to the law, that if you are in Christ, you are dead to the Old Covenant law, to the Old Testament law. And so there's very, very strong language, and we'll look at some other examples of that strong language as well, but Paul doesn't sugarcoat, and Paul doesn't beat around the bush, and yet I find that so often it's like today in the body of Christ, We're so unwilling. I just just feel like so often we're clinging to this old covenant paradigm, again, because we're afraid that we're going to sin or we're afraid that other people are going to sin or we're afraid that we're going to go off the deep end. And so we're afraid to introduce people to the fullness of the grace of God, not recognizing that God's grace is actually so much better at keeping us from sin, again, than the old covenant law ever could be. So I just want to kind of talk through some of these things, these things that I've been thinking about. And and, and really what I want to do here is I want us to understand the completeness of what Christ has accomplished for us. I want us to understand and I want us to walk more fully and more freely in this incredible grace and freedom that Jesus gave his life to secure for you and for me. Because what we can do is we can come under this mindset, this law mindedness, or this sin consciousness, where we're fighting so hard against sin. We're fighting so hard for freedom, not recognizing that actually under the new covenant of grace that you and I have already been brought into by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, the blood of Jesus Christ Mm. does a way better job than you or I could ever do of fighting against sin. And here's the thing is that Jesus conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. He did it all once and for all. And what he's invited us into is a covenant of grace that actually we we get to experience the fullness of it through rest. We don't experience the fullness of it through striving. We experience the fullness of it through rest. When we rest in the reality of what Jesus has done for us and we get out from under the weight of that yoke of, of bondage that we've lived under, that stuff that we've carried around with us, then we can really be free to walk in the fullness of the freedom, of the grace, of the joy, of the peace that Jesus came to secure for us. Let me throw something out here now, and I'll um, dive into this a little bit more, probably not today, but um, but but later on. And, you know, when, when we look at the New Testament, when we look at the Old Testament, I think that it's very, very important that we learn how to look at Scripture, to look at verses, even verses that would be difficult or complicated to us or that would appear that way under a new covenant paradigm, and to make sure that when we're reading Scripture that we're doing so through a new covenant lens. Because here's what I think we do. I think we have a (laughs) tendency— to look at the scripture verses and forgive me for the way that I'm using this language. is probably not a, not a very a skilled way that I'm going to do this, but we look at verses that we would look at and say, Oh, that's a very grace filled verse. And I think our, the training of our mind is to look at those verses through a new covenant lens. Oh yeah. We have all this grace because of what Jesus did for us. We have all this grace, like, um, like when, when, when Paul writes in, uh, in second Corinthians that he, um, Uh sorry, let me let me just go to the verse because I don't want to mess it up. I don't know why I'm I'm having a hard time thinking of the first couple words of it. Um Second Corinthians chapter eight. Let's see. Did I say chapter I meant chapter nine, verse eight. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you having always all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Like that's a verse that we would look at and we don't see any, like I don't see any law in that verse. What I see in that verse is just so much grace. God's making all grace abound toward you so that you always having all sufficiency in all things have an abundance. Like it's so overflowing with God's grace and God's abundance and God's favor. But then when we look at another verse, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, whatever, but we might look at another verse that is more on the correctional side or more on the side of what you're supposed to do as a follower of Christ. You know, we, and, and Paul will go through in a few different places, he'll go through these laundry lists of, of things of adulterous and covetousness and all these different things And he'll list out sin. So let's not think for a second that grace ignores sin because it doesn't. Grace doesn't ignore sin at all. But what we've got to learn how to do is whether we're looking at these verses that seem to be overflowing with the theme of grace or if we're reading these other verses that seem to be um, warning about sin, about a sinful lifestyle and whatever, that we're looking at them both through the same lens, a new covenant lens, that we're interpreting scripture according to the covenant that we are currently operating under and not some old outdated inferior obsolete covenant that you and I are actually dead to in Christ Jesus because and and maybe you disagree with me on that uh, but 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 I feel like we have this tendency to Based on what kind of scripture, who the author is, what they're talking about, what group of people they're talking to, what subject matter they're dealing with, I think we have a tendency to kind of flip that switch in our minds that says, oh, well, now we've got to, we're talking about law, we're talking about 10 commandments, we're talking about requirements, we're talking about these things. When in reality, let me just throw another verse out there at you um, Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 11. It says in him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he's talking about a circumcision there that's on a heart level, not about a physical cutting away of flesh, but a circumcision that is made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. And he says you were also circumcised, meaning that it is past tense, that this is something that's already been accomplished, buried with him, verse 12, in baptism in which you were also raised with him through the faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. You were raised, not will be or could be or should be or depending on how good you're doing, you might be. You were raised with Christ. You were crucified with Christ, buried with Christ in baptism. That's what the going under the water in baptism represents and you were raised with to life with Christ. Verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive, again, past tense, he has made alive together with himself, having forgiven you all trespasses. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. So l- listen to that phrase, wiped out the handwriting of requirements, the handwriting of requirements. Um, I was just looking at down at the, at the margin in, in, my, in my Bible here, um, and I'm reading from the New King James Version, but there's a note in the margin of, of my Bible here where, uh, uh, f- there where it says handwriting of requirements. It actually says certificate of death. With its requirements, this is another way to translate that. So having wiped out the certificate of death with its requirements. So here's the thing. this doesn't mean that you and I no longer have any requirements under grace. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that God doesn't require anything of us. It doesn't mean that, you know, this is not this is not hippie whatever here. you know, i'm I'm not talking about that. And the Bible, the New Testament, the New Covenant certainly doesn't uh, grant us license to sin and to live that way. What it does is it actually enhances our ability to abstain from sin, to live free of sin, because it's not based on our works. It's not based on adherence to a bunch of laws and rules and regulations and requirements. It's actually based on the power of the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of us. See, remember... Under the old covenant law, in that time, since it was before Christ, the Holy Spirit did not indwell the people of God. And so the law was actually set up by God in place. And again, the law was from God. It was something that God gave. And so the law is not, you know, I don't want anybody to get the idea that I'm saying that the law was bad, that the law was never valid, that the law was evil or something like that. That's not the case at all. The law came from the mind of God. Now, what ended up happening, one of the things that happened with that was that the Pharisees ended up, the, the not just the Pharisees, but the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the people that were in charge of these things back then, over the centuries, what they did was they took God's law and then they added all kinds of other laws uh, onto it You know, there's 613 Old Testament laws. You know, we think about the law, we tend to think about the Ten Commandments. But that was just 10. (laughs) There's 603 Old Testament laws besides the Ten Commandments. But what the religious leaders did, even beyond that, was they came and they set up all of these other laws and all these other rules and all these other parameters around the actual parameters that God had set up to protect what God had set up. In other words, again, it was that kind of egotistical, humanistic thing that said, I don't trust myself, and I certainly don't trust other people to not sin against God's law, so let's set these other things up in place to protect God's law so that we don't accidentally break the covenant. So, by the time we get to Jesus coming on the scene, there's all these just silly things in place. And it's why the religious leaders would get so mad at Jesus for healing somebody on the Sabbath. Because they had built up all of these extra parameters around God's law, which said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Excuse me and not to do any work on the Sabbath. And they completely left the spirit of the law, the spirit of what God had put there in place as protection for them. They left the spirit of that and made it all about the law or all about the rule, all about the regulation. So that if you did any kind of work on the Sabbath, if you, did, like if you did anything but rest on the Sabbath, it was condemnation. And in some ways, um, and I heard a friend say this recently, and I, and I resonated with it so much. And I think that it's so true that in some ways, maybe in a lot of ways, that today under the new covenant of grace, that we've actually done the same thing. That we've tried to bring in extra parameters and extra requirements and to say, yes, God's covenant of grace is awesome. The new covenant is amazing, but let's put these extra parameters around it so that we don't allow people license to sin. And I have to tell you that on paper it looks good, but it doesn't help in the way that we think it does. Now you know I I grew up um, in an environment where you know I I always felt like what I was doing wasn't enough, and I I felt like I was very afraid. I was very afraid of God. I was very afraid to mess up. Very afraid to make mistakes. I knew that God loved me. I loved God, but there was a lot of stuff in my head. A lot of condemnation. A lot of shame. A lot of guilt, and this idea that I had to. Pay for my sins. So, like as a teenager, I remember, I mean, I would respond to every single altar call there was that I was ever at a church service of, and there was an altar call. I would respond to just about every single one because I felt like I got to get this right again. I got to get my life right again. I got to repent of these sins that I've done. I got to repent of this mindset. I got to repent of that word that came out of my mouth. And just like all this stuff. And I always just felt like I wasn't. Measuring up, it wasn't good enough. And I was afraid that if I didn't respond to that altar call or, or, you know, altar call or not, but I was afraid that if I didn't like get everything right, then I was in danger of either losing my salvation or at the very minimum, in danger of God being upset with me, you're not being happy with me, or whatever. And so what was I doing? I was taking God's covenant, God, the new covenant, based on God's grace, secured through the blood of Jesus, a sacrifice that he made on my behalf, once and for all, because the Father loved me so much that he wanted me to be able to be with him for eternity, starting here on the earth, to be able to experience heaven on earth, to enjoy his presence, to know what peace is, to know what freedom is. And yet all the messages I'm hearing are talking about you better get saved or you're in danger of hell. And I'm not saying that that wasn't true, but what I'm saying is that it put a very wrong, to me, it gave me, it, it, it caused me to develop a mindset that was based on works and a mindset that was really based on fear it was salvation by fear but here's here's something that paul says um in romans he says that the kingdom of god is righteousness peace and joy in the holy spirit righteousness peace and joy In the Holy Spirit. And so if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, if you want to be a part of the family of God, if you want to be under the rule, the reign, the lordship, the jurisdiction, the authority of King Jesus, this is what it looks like. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we take that first piece. We take the righteousness of God. And that's, you know, doing right if we want to just just very very simply it's it's doing it's not just doing right, it's a position of rightness. It's a position of being right uh, before God. Now under the Old covenant, <laughs> righteousness was the result of obeying the law. Righteousness was the result of doing everything that the law said. And it went so far. You want to read through the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 5, 6, 7, 8. You want to go through all that. You'll see blessing and you'll see curses. You'll see if if you are faithful to adhere to these commandments that the Lord your God is giving to you this day, you're going to be blessed and you're going to have this and you're going to have that. If you don't follow these rules and you don't follow these commandments, then this is what will befall you and there's curses. But Paul says to the Galatians that we are free ...from the curse of the law, that we've actually been redeemed from the curse of the law. Righteousness under the new covenant is not the result of following all of the rules and regulations. Righteousness under the new covenant actually happens by putting your faith in Jesus... ...because you actually become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus according to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21... You become, you are made to be the righteousness of God in Christ. I heard somebody say recently, uh, and and I might be saying this wrong, but it was the idea of you're not just righteous in terms of right standing before God, you're right standing in God. Because your place, your position is in Christ. And it's completely based on the finished work of Jesus. And so here's what I was going to get to that I haven't gotten to yet. But this is one of the uh, kind of overarching is it overarching or overarching? I feel like I, I always pick one and I, I don't know which one it is. Uh, so correct me there. Is it overarching or overarching? I mean, overarching sounds better. Um, things just just kind of uh, topics or or just points that I want to kind of talk about as we're going through some of these concepts that all of our requirements for salvation, they're met in Jesus Christ. So it's not that there's no requirements for us under the new covenant of grace. It's just that Jesus has already met those requirements for us. And because he's already met those requirements for us, it means that we are free to to trust him, to walk with him, to obey without the weight of, on our shoulders of, oh man, I really messed up today. Oh man, I really blew it today. And so notice the difference. It's not this thing that says, "Uh, well, you don't have to do anything. You can do whatever you want because you're under grace. It's not that. It's not that. Paul deals with that in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. And he says, so what shall we say then? Because he just got done at the end of Romans chapter 5, talking about how great grace is and how where sin abounded, grace abounded, abounded much more. And we get into Romans chapter 6, verse 1, and he says, so what shall we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if grace is so great and grace covers us and grace is stronger than our sin, do we just continue in sin since we have all the grace that we'll ever need anyway and grace is much stronger? But the next line, he says, certainly not, for how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So here's the thing, under the new covenant of grace. See, look, under the old covenant, forgive me for getting preachy, but under the old covenant, you were a sinner. You were a sinner, Tainted by the sinful nature of Adam and humanity, you know, the, the sinful nature, gene, trait, whatever it is that was passed down from every single person that's ever lived. And, 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 and you were a sinner. And by following God's law, by following God's command, you could be granted a status of righteousness by faithfully obeying the law. You didn't have to do it perfectly because there were sacrifices in place for that. But notice how the sacrifices had to be done over and over again. And then on the Day of Atonement, every single year, one day per year, where they would sacrifice on behalf of all of the people for all of the sins that they committed that they forgot about, that they didn't know that they had done, that they didn't have an animal to sacrifice in order to properly repent for it and whatever. And so there were these there was sacrifice in place, but it was not enough. The Hebrews tells us that the sacrifices, the day of atonement, the, the, these sacrifices that were made on behalf of God's people, it wasn't enough to, to save them from their sins. It wasn't enough to forgive them for their sins. All it did was temporarily cover over their sins. All it did was temporarily um, shelter them and shield them from the, 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 the punishment that they deserved for their sin. So they were sinners and they had a sin consciousness. But that was before Jesus came and became the final and the ultimate atoning sacrifice for your sins and for mine. When he gave his life on that cross, it's done. It was once and for all. It's futile for you and I to do what we so often do and try to pay a penalty or pay the price for sin that Jesus already paid for on the cross. It's completely unnecessary. And it's a law mindedness, it's an old covenant paradigm that causes us to think that way, to live that way, to walk that way. So Paul says, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The first component of that righteousness—righteousness, righteousness, right standing with God, right standing in Christ, right standing before God. But look, it's not based on your works or your ability to fulfill the law, to fulfill the commands. To, it's not even based on your ability. Like, like, like uh, what Jesus brings into the into um, in the Gospels when they ask him about the the first great commandments and and he says love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength it's not even based on your ability to do that well your righteousness is based on jesus being perfect and being obedient in your place because as paul tells us in romans chapter 5 that his obedience became your obedience meaning that Even when you don't get it right, it's not about that. And I just think we spend so much time worrying and and meditating on the things that we don't get right. And it's a law, sin, consciousness. It's an old covenant paradigm. Because under the new covenant, uh, and with a new covenant lens, a new covenant perspective, a new covenant paradigm, a new covenant mindset, it's not oh, I'm just going to sin today because Jesus paid it all. No. But it is recognizing that when I mess up, when I don't get it all the way right, <laughs> which is a lot, that the weight of that requirement is not against me because Jesus wiped it out. And he nailed it to the cross. So the weight of that, the weight of these requirements, any requirements that you and I have under the new covenant, any requirements that you and I have, the weight of it falls on Jesus. I'm still looking for better language to describe this, but it's like when we read scripture, because we read scripture on this side of the cross in the new covenant, we read scripture that talks about, doing certain things and not doing other certain things. But here's the thing about it. The weight of it is not on you. The weight of it is on the sacrifice of Jesus, which was a once-for-all-time thing, and it was sufficient. So that when you mess up, when you sin, when you struggle, when you have an addiction, when whatever You don't have to look at yourself and beat yourself up and feel ashamed and wonder if God's upset with you or wonder if God's happy with you because you are in Christ. Listen, you are in Christ. That means that God cannot look at you without seeing Jesus. And God cannot look at Jesus without seeing you. God the Father, I'm I'm talking about. God the Father, when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. When he looks at Jesus, he sees you because you are one, you are united with Christ. I hope this is good news for somebody. Your requirements are met in Jesus. This is like this great, you know, we talk about the scandal of grace because it's like you and I, we did nothing to deserve this, but God loved you so much that he sacrificed himself so that he could qualify you in order to give you everything that he has. He knew, (laughs) we made it very, very clear, in the Old Testament, (laughs) that we couldn't do it right. We made it very clear to God that we could not get it right on our own, that we could not get it right, even with all of his patience and all of his long suffering and loving kindness and mercy and all of his rescuing and all of his providing and bringing water out of rocks and bringing food up from the ground and all the things that he did to protect and provide for his people. We made it very, very clear that we were not going to get it right. And actually, Paul actually tells us in Romans chapter seven that that was actually the purpose of the law. It was to be our tutor to bring us to Christ. The law actually showed us that we couldn't do it on our own apart from Christ. So God took it upon himself because he wasn't willing to sacrifice his relationship with you. He wasn't willing to sacrifice what he desired from the very, very beginning, which was to give you access to every single part of himself. Because he loves you that much because you are in his heart in such a profound way that you and I could never fully wrap our heads around it. So he actually sacrificed himself. You know, there's this bad theology out there that says that uh, Jesus did what he did, you know, to... It's this bad theology around the fact that Jesus is our mediator you know, he is the mediator of the new covenant. And that's the book of Hebrews talks about that. Read Hebrews chapter eight. We're going to get into it later on. But Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. He's the testator of the covenant, of the will that gives us access to all of God, that gives us access to his presence, that gives us access to his family, that gives us access to Jesus' inheritance. But there's this bad theology that says that it was, you know, God was angry with humanity and that, you know, Jesus had to go in there. And now it's basically like a twisting of the father's arm that because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, that legally speaking, that God can't deny us salvation and God can't deny us access because of what Jesus did. So it's like this thing where Jesus and the father were not really on the same page. It was the father in his anger and his wrath against humanity because of sin, his anger with all of the people. And then Jesus steps in the middle and he says, no God, no father, you can't mess with them because I'm here and you've got to go through me. When in reality, it was Jesus's Philippians chapter two, tells us that it was Jesus' obedience to the Father. It was Jesus' obedience to the will of the Father that caused him to do what he did. That he was obedient to the point of death. I think it's it's either verse 7 or 8. He was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so the Father has exalted him, giving him the name above every other name. And here's the really beautiful thing about that is that Jesus was already fully God. He's always existed. The Trinity has always been there. It's always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't begin existing when he was born to a virgin named Mary. He's always been, um, not, not as a human, not as a man, but he's always existed. He's always been God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus has always been God Always had the place of highest authority, always. But here's the thing. When he came to this world, he laid it all down. He didn't stop being God, but he did fully become a man while fully being God. But he laid down that aspect of his divine nature so that he could live life here on the earth as a man and he could do it in perfect obedience to the will of the Father and he can die a perfect death as a perfect spotless lamb, a perfect sacrifice which was sufficient to satisfy the entire weight of the sins of the world. And he did that the way that he did it so that he could bring us with him so that when the father exalts him to that place, giving him the name above every other name, it's like he does it, but he brings us with him so that now you and I, even though we didn't do anything to deserve it because of the fullness and completeness of what Jesus did for us, he brings us into that place with himself because we are in Christ where Ephesians chapter two, verse six says that we are seated where we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places, like we're in Christ. That is our position. That is our nature. That is our identity. We are one with God. And as such, we have become co-heirs, Romans chapter eight, co-heirs, joint heirs with Jesus so that he brings us into the fullness of, of his inheritance in God. It's absolutely incredible, the, the amount of love that he had for us, having all of the cards, being fully God, and yet choosing to bring us into his inheritance. I, I think that the story of the, uh, the prodigal son that Jesus tells, I think that it, that it that illustrates that, really it illustrates the opposite of that in a really beautiful way, when we see the older brother in the story, who's mad and unwilling to celebrate the fact that the father has embraced the prodigal son's return. So in case you don't know the story, the prodigal son, who was the younger, uh, the younger of the two brothers, he was, he just was fed up with living at home. He wanted to go. He wanted to take his inheritance ahead of time. So he went out. Uh, you know, I, th- I think uh, culturally there, the way that he did it was basically, it was a, a a huge, a hugely disgraceful thing to say. Basically, saying that I don't want to wait until you die to get my inheritance that you owe me. So I want it now. Effectively saying, Dad, you might as well be dead to me because I'd rather have your stuff than have you. Does that sound familiar to you know the way we treat God sometimes? But he goes away. The Bible says it's riotous living, and he's just living it up and spends all his money, wastes all his money, and he ends up in a. Farm eating food out of the oh no, no, it says he anyway. He (laughs) he would have uh he was in this place of just destitution and realizes, you know what, I can go and be a servant in my father's house. Now, look, that's a law mindedness that says, you know, I don't deserve what Jesus has done for me. I don't deserve the love that my father wants to give me. So the best that we can hope for is to be elevated as a servant. And many, many people in the body of Christ today, they get their pleasure out of being a servant of God and out of striving and out of doing lots of stuff. And out of, you know, doing spiritual warfare and out of spending hours in prayer and out of, you know, these different things out of fasting, like, you know, four days a week. And, you know, it's like the works that we do that allow us to feel that sense of security, like God must be pleased with me because look at all the stuff that I'm doing for him. And the reality is that, of course, there's there's merit. Of course, there's um, there's. I mean, it's very helpful to fast. It's very helpful to spend hours a day in prayer. It's very helpful to do these things as far as your growth and your connection. You know, your mindset changing and all of that. But it doesn't do anything to change how God feels about you. And so if you've been striving and struggling and fighting to try to get God to see you, just stop because he sees you. He sees you in Christ. And he loves you as much as he ever possibly could. And there's nothing that you could do that would cause him to stop loving you. There's nothing you could do to make him love you more because you already have all of his love. You already have the full weight, the fullness of the love of your heavenly father. And you had that. I mean, you you had the fullness of that even before you came to him. (laughs) While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was the will of the father for you to know him because he loved you. Even before you came to him, even before you gave your life to him, even when you were stuck in your sins and you were, even with all of that, he loved you fully and completely with all of the weight of his love. And it's what Jesus did that allows us access to our heavenly father, to the newness of life that he has for us. I think I've been trying to get back to this. So the prodigal son comes home and it's not at all the reception that he was hoping for. He was hoping that he could just kind of barely just do enough to beg enough, to look good enough, to gain enough compassion from his father that he'd be able to just barely get his foot back in the door and maybe be elevated to the status of servant, which would be much better than what he was currently uh, experiencing out on his own. But the father just embraces him completely, restores him. You'll see, he puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his fingers, covers his feet. He just gives him the, just the, this incredible loving reception. He's celebrating the return. He gets everybody else excited about the son's return, even though they must be aware of the disgrace that he's put on his family by leaving the way that he did. I mean, look, God is not afraid of 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 of. Uh, the, the scandal. God's not afraid of the scandal of accepting you back. I I guarantee you there must have been relatives besides just the son, the older brother that we see in the story, but other relatives and other people around the kingdom and, and, or around the household or whatever that were looking at at the, the way that the father was receiving his, his, his younger son. And, and they were looking at that like thinking bad about him. Like, why would he accept this guy back after all that he did to put such a blemish on the family name? <laughs> just like there might have been people out there in your life, or maybe you've even had these thoughts before where it's like, you know, it's like that Jonah mentality of not wanting to be obedient to God to go to Nineveh because he's got such a this just Anger in his heart toward those people that he doesn't want to go for fear that they might actually get their life right with God. Like this thing that happens sometimes in the people of God where we judge others because their sins are so great and we judge others because, they, you know, they've done so much to blaspheme or destroy or put down the name of Jesus or whatever it might be. And we think that they couldn't possibly measure up and they shouldn't be able to come home. And so what we have is we have this older brother in the story who then he's having this conversation with his dad. And he's like, dad, why are you doing this? Why did you kill the fatted calf and throw this feast for your son who left when all these years I've been with you and you never did this for me? All these years I've been with you and I just think about about Jesus and the way how he's been so faithful. He's never left the father's side. He's always been the faithful, perfect, amazing son of God. And yet he doesn't treat us like, come on, dad, why are you letting Duke with all of his fault and all of his sins and all of his fears and all of his problems and all of his challenges and all the times he's rejected you. Why are you allowing him to come home and participate in my inheritance? He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to be obedient to my father I'm gonna go and I'm gonna be obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, which is so significant because cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus became a curse for you so that you could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He became poor for you so that you could become rich in Christ Jesus. It's a it's just it's such a beautiful thing. What because the older brother in the story, what he's really I would imagine, you know, what he's really frustrated about is the fact that the younger brother already squandered all of his inheritance. And so now he's coming back into the family and he's being accepted back as if nothing ever happened. And now there's less inheritance to go around because he's already spent his. And so the older brother is like, well, I've got my inheritance, but... You know, kind of doing the math and saying, is he going to come in and I'm going to have to share this with him now? But on the other hand, Jesus, our elder brother, who had everything, who had it all, who was completely perfect, never did anything wrong. He loved us so much that he was willing to lay it all down to bring us into his inheritance, to share his inheritance with us. And this is the reality of the new covenant. And this is the reality of the righteousness that you and I have that's not based on our works or what we've done, but fully on Jesus. And so the kingdom of God, let me just finish up this other thought. I'm like running in circles, I feel like, trying to loop all these things back together. But So the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy. And so the kingdom of God, the family of God, the rule, the reign of God. This is how it's defined. This is how it's described. It's righteousness. It's right standing with God. It's it's that right standing in Christ, in the heart of God, but it's not based on your works. It's not based on obedience to a list of rules. It's based on what Jesus did for you. The weight of that perfection all falls on Jesus and he invites you and I into it so that we're completely free to live for him. We're completely free to fall in love with him. He's like, I want you so free so that you can just focus on my goodness, focus on loving me, focus on me loving you, focus on these things. Focus. I don't want your focus. I don't want you distracted by having to adhere to a bunch of rules and regulations. Let your life in Christ, the newness of your life in Christ, lead you to walk in freedom. Where we're not putting the cart before the horse, you know. In the old the old covenant was opposite. The old covenant was you do this and you get this. The new covenant is Jesus did it all for you, so walk in it. And 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 I love the way that Paul talks about this. We find it in uh, Galatians, uh, is it Galatians uh, chapter two, verse six, where he says, "As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so." walk in him. And he says it again in Romans chapter six, walk in this newness of life that you have in Christ Jesus. Don't get bogged down by the stuff you have to do. You know, let righteous living flow out of your life as you fall in love with Jesus. And just to make sure that you can do that, I'm taking out all of the weight of the requirements. I'm, Jesus nailed it to the cross so you don't have to be weighted down by stuff, by doing stuff. You're completely free to rest in me. This is the gospel. This is the kingdom, righteousness, and peace, and joy. You know, God actually rules and reigns and governs from a place of peace. The a messianic uh, prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 uh, verses 6 and 7 talks about how of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And it actually calls him the prince of peace. He is perfect in peace. He's an expert in peace. God rules and governs from a place of peace, from a mindset of peace, that there's never a time where you have to be afraid. There's never a time where you have to be anxious because Jesus has taken the weight of those things off of you and he's put them on himself and he did it once and for all. Uh, Isaiah 53 verse five, the chastisement of our peace was upon him when he went to that whipping post for you and for me. He was beaten for our healing. He was beaten for our peace. He took it upon himself so that you and I could walk in that peace. And he wants us to be joyful. He wants us to have joy, to experience the fullness of his joy. So like this is the gospel. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit And the weight of it all fell on Jesus so that you don't have to be responsible for trying to figure it out on your own and make it up as you go along and take the weight of it and and feel bad for it when you don't get it right. It's all on Jesus. So just look at Jesus. This is the gospel. And if we invite people into this, who doesn't want a king like Jesus? Everybody wants a king like Jesus, but they don't know it because we put all these rules and regulations on what they have to do in order to get right so that they can live and walk give their lives to Jesus. No, you don't need to do anything. Just come to him because he is so good, he's so full of love, he's the king. He is the the Bible calls him the desire of the nations. Nations want a king like Jesus but he's given you and I this incredible privilege and responsibility of showing the world what he looks like. And if we're showing the world that he looks like an angry God, if we're showing the world that our father looks like he's upset and he's angry, he's mad at you because you're sinning. He's mad at you because you haven't given your life to him yet. Look, I want to tell you, He has nothing to be mad about because Jesus already paid the price for sin once and for all. Whether they accept what he did for them or not, he already paid the price for it. Why is God up in heaven mad at sinners for sinning? It's what they do. like It's it's in their nature to do so because they haven't come to him yet. Why is God up in heaven mad at Christians for sinning? because they're not sinners anymore and it's not in their nature to do so. And 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 it's the, Jesus already paid for it. So why would God be up in heaven mad at sinners or non, or excuse me, for uh, those that are saved or unsaved, why would God be up in heaven angry at people for sin? <laughs> I just think that that's an old covenant paradigm. It's not a new covenant paradigm because Jesus already paid the price for it. And he just wants his kids, his prodigal sons to come home and to see how good he is. I think that God is so eager to share his goodness with people. I just think God is so eager to share with you, to show you how good he is, how full of love he is, how full of grace and mercy and compassion he is. And and so, again, you know, I got so used to this idea for so many years, this idea of being um, afraid or or what, what am I trying to say? Um, like being scared into salvation. And you know what? It worked for me. It, it worked for me as far as getting saved. It didn't work for me as far as understanding my identity. It didn't work for me as far as, you know, feeling at peace. It definitely didn't work for me for feeling joy. And it definitely didn't work for me for feeling like I was righteous. <laughs> like it didn't work. It, so it wasn't kingdom living. It wasn't kingdom mindedness. It was law mindedness. Yes, it got me in the door. <sighs> but if the best we can do is scare people into salvation, we're not giving them the opportunity to really be acquainted with the loving Father who did everything just to be with them so that they could be one with Him, so that they could enter into His rest and experience His peace and His joy. So let's preach that way. Let's preach the gospel that way. Let's preach salvation and repentance and forgiveness of sins that way. Let's preach avoiding hell that way. Like, let's let's preach from this place of not just scaring people into the kingdom, but like loving people into the kingdom and showing people how good the Father is and how good Jesus is and what a good king he is. That he wants to... to to, to rule and to reign in our lives, but from a place of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And he gives us his Holy Spirit. So we have that fellowship and communion and partnership with him. And we get to, 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 to be free to walk out in freedom from sin, freedom from addiction, freedom from fear, freedom from bondage and all these things that we've carried around with us for so long through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, not by adhering to a list of rules and regulations and things that we've got to do to get right and all this kind of stuff. It's it's not that. We're under a new covenant of grace. We're under a new covenant that is forged and established and sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us in obedience to his father because he loved us that much and so uh we'll, i don't know maybe we'll call that introduction i don't know um i'm gonna definitely wrap up because i'm coming up on an hour here and uh, i don't want to talk your ear off any longer but um this is something we're going to come back to uh, i i want to keep having these discussions on the new covenant and kind of painting a picture of what a new covenant lens looks like what does it look like to view scripture what does it look like to view the things of god through a new covenant lens And just getting out from under that old obsolete covenant that was good for the people of God in that time period. But because Jesus has come, because we're on the other side of the cross, because he paid it all for us. You know, for us to come and relate to God on the basis of rules and regulations, on the basis of a law-mindedness, it's just, it's so incomplete. So let's remember that we get to relate to God on the basis of a new covenant, which means, and uh, this is what we'll do next time, if I can remember. I want to get into 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and kind of walk through several verses there. But here's what it says in verse 16. It says, When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That is the reality of the new covenant. That's the reality of God's grace, that when you turn to the Lord, the moment you give your life to Jesus and you make that heart decision to accept his free gift of salvation and eternal life, the veil is taken away so that you are free to walk with Christ. You are free to experience his presence. And you are free to live your life in the light of God's face. I just want to challenge you. I'll leave you with that thought today. Um, Live your life today. Live your life this week remembering, recognizing, partnering in your mind with this reality that you walk in, that you live in the light of God's face. You are in Christ. God is so pleased with you. He's so overjoyed at the sight of you. He's so overwhelmed at the sight of you. His love for you is so incredible. Stop being bogged down by this lie from the enemy that says that you're not measuring up, so you're not good enough. Just stop. It's not the right, it's not the right covenant. That's a different covenant. You're under the covenant, ah, the new covenant. It's God's grace. Um, we'll talk more about this, guys. Um Love y'all so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your time. Don't forget to subscribe, share, leave a comment, review. Appreciate it so much. We'll be back next week uh, with another episode. And uh, I think I'll have a guest on the next episode. And then uh, we'll come back again and get into more of the stuff on the New Covenant. If you want to hear more about this, just leave me a note. Drop me a comment somewhere. One of the podcast platforms or on um, one of the uh, social media platforms, whatever. Reach out. Let me know what you think. And uh, yeah, we'll have more conversations like this. Again, appreciate you guys. Have an awesome day. See you soon.